Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is a very experienced operator entrepreneur, Joe Meyer. Joe has built several large business units within larger companies like Upper Deck, PwC, and eBay. And he's founded and sold multiple companies to corporate behemoths like AOL and Apple. Joe attributes much of his success to his unwavering perseverance, which was driven home when his college baseball career was painfully cut short, which we'll hear about later. Joe and I also talk about the Herculean efforts needed to get any new business off the ground and then properly positioned to sell when these same businesses are often days from bankruptcy before finding sustainable success. Finally, we'll learn about Joe's latest venture, Exec Threads, which is a peer-to-peer job-sharing network. Joe has built Exec Threads to close to 1 million of the highest quality business leaders from all walks of life who uncover and share some of the most sought-after private job listings for top executives in the world. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Joe Meyer. Joe, thank you for doing this today. Really excited to have you on, right? I've been uh, anticipating this particular interview, so much so that when Mark Cuban tried to take your spot, I said, no way, man, get back of the line. So thank you for being here. No worries. Probably should have went with Mark Cuban, but that's fine. <laughs> I guess what I'm excited about is you're you're this kind of self-proclaimed operator entrepreneur. You've been in so many in- industries operating as kind of the CXO. You've been founders of businesses. You've been in venture capital. You've really kind of seen and done it all and not afraid to kind of reinvent yourself. And what's really important here, right, is you've been part of these exits, right? You're built and sold business units to some of the top acquirers in the world. And now you've got the latest exec threads of business that you've launched that sounds like it's a runaway freight train. So I think there's a lot to get into. If you don't mind, right, it, you've got a storied career, but I love how it kind of started when you and I talked. It was, you've got a great story of it's like, hey, this was my life before college and now, you know, I'm going after it and kind of perseverance is my superpower. So can you take us back a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to it and, and having a good conversation. Um, you know, I just decided at a, a really early age that I was going to have a atypical career. And what I mean by atypical career, I mean, you know, had a mom and parents who, you know, really reinforced education, but they re- reinforced education really with two mantras. One is, you know, get a good education, get college educated and have a, to have a better life than us uh, because they weren't college educated, but also with the desired outcome to be or the objective to be a a doctor, a lawyer, a baker. And I had three older brothers and I saw them go down those traditional career paths. And I didn't necessarily sense that they were overly fulfilled or gratified in those career paths. Mm-hmm. Plus my dad got re-engineered out of a job twice, you know, within a corporate banking setting. Uh, and I saw that at an early age. And I just said to myself, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to, control my own destiny. I'm going to go in, I'm going to go down a career path where, you know, no one else can make decisions on, on how my career is going to play out except for myself. And for me, that was really an entrepreneurial. So you and I spoke last week and, and you said that entrepreneurship is a career path. I've actually said throughout my career that 
entrepreneurship is not a career path. And what I mean by that is you're not working your way up the corporate ladder. You're not trying to find the next best job within your company or outside your company. And there's no like steady progress points of, oh, I'm a manager, then I'm a director, then I'm a VP, then I'm a SVP. You know, entrepreneurship is very choppy, very unpredictable, very non-forecastable. Uh, and you're not really measuring your success by your titles or your income like you do in, in a traditional career path. So, mm-hmm. you know, the only thing I would, the only other thing I would say is entrepreneurship is not for the light at heart. There's a lot of bumps in the road, a lot of pitfalls and uh, peaks and valleys and, and potholes. Uh, and you experience failure, oftentimes much more than success. And uh, and you have to persevere through those those challenging times, which are never ending and omnipresent. Yeah, thank you. I, I you know I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, and and actually I was meeting with one this morning, and he said, you know, nobody sees the first three years of the Herculean efforts that it takes to get something off the ground, and then as soon as they see you in the news and the company's successful, and you go out and have an exit, they think it's this kind of turnaround success, or you must have been lucky. So yes, it's it's incredibly difficult. I appreciate you sharing that. We all recognize it. What I mean by career path, and I think that this is really kind of proving out in today's world, is that you know I come from parents who were entrepreneurs, and they started a business. And if they were fortunate enough, they would you know take that business 40, 50 years, and they're either turning off the lights, handing it to the next generation, or trying to sell it for you know asset value. Whereas today, what I see is, and, and I'm an example of that, is I've started four businesses. I've sold four businesses. I am doing the fifth. I see it very much as a career path. And I think this part resonates with you, because when we chatted, I think you agree, is that it's not about getting up to the plate and trying to be at the exact right moment with bases loaded with one swing hitting a grand slam. That is not what we're doing here. Those expectations are ridiculous. We read about those. Um, what entrepreneurship is, is really trying to build value, right? We're looking for product market fit. We're trying to get unit economics right. And at some point for every entrepreneur, they might find themselves that, that they are not the right person to lead the organization to that next level. And it may be to st- time to hire around you, step aside, or even sell that business. And what we're seeing today is there's more of that. Somebody's going to do five companies and three of them might work, right? And I'm excited for this generation of entrepreneurs who sees taking some money off the table kind of early in that fourth inning, as opposed to waiting to the ninth or overtime to monetize. I think you're going to see, you know, more satisfaction, kind of diversity of industries and experiences. And I thought like, you know, when you, you and I first met, that's what really resonated with me as I think you saw all of that. That's what I mean by by career path. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned not not taking it to the ninth inning, but taking it to the fourth inning. It's an analogy I can relate to. I played college baseball, so I think about things in analogous terms. But, you know, when I think about, you know, how hard it is not only to get an idea from idea stage to you know, operating stage, but then how to get it from operating stage to monetization and how to get it and product market fit plays into that, but then get it to profitability and cash flow positive and, and, and scale, which is really kind mm-hmm. of what it's all about. I mean, the chances of that happening just dwindle every step of the way. And there's very, very, very 
microscopic percentages of total new ventures that make it to that kind of that final point. And I think there's that saying greed is good from the movie Wall Street. In some ways, I actually think greed isn't good in world of entrepreneurship because yep. there's a lot of companies out there that could have achieved liquidity in the form of PO or, or uh, an M&A exit, you know, earlier on in the process, but they held out for a much bigger payday. And, mm-hmm. and, and there's a graveyard of companies that never achieved that bigger payday, you know, and, and I, knowing when to exit when you do have that opportunity um, and, and, you know, playing your cards right is, is so important. And sometimes, you know, you should get out at the fourth or fifth inning and, and give it off to a relief pitcher. Uh, as opposed to, you know, trying to pitch a complete game. Yeah, I I like to say also that by putting wins on the board, right, selling in that fourth inning makes the next one a little bit easier. And you, right, you've played the venture game, right? You've been in EIR, so you're evaluating, making investments, following portfolio companies. And those are a certain set of expectations, right? That, you know, if you if you want to play that game, that's what you got to follow. And so you're going to see companies that get overfunded and over diluted and in the end does it even make sense for those founders to sell at certain points where they could have liquidity it, it maybe it makes sense to chase the kind of the biggest outcome because that's the only way they get a payday so yeah there's uh, some competing interests going on um, when you take on uh, outside investment and uh, you know I'm a, and I'm certainly a fan of it in, in certain certain situations yeah and the only thing I would say in that regard is that a lot of entrepreneurs especially in the tech space view, raising venture capital as a litmus for success. And, mm-hmm. and as yeah. you probably know, it's only the start uh, of the process. Uh, and yeah, you might be fortunate enough to raise venture capital, but at the same time, one, it's not a barometer of how successful your company is. Uh, it's a lot of not so successful companies have raised venture capital, done nothing with it. But I would also say that once you raise venture capital, especially you know if you raise a decent amount of it, um, it, it really limits your liquidity opportunities because you can't entertain uh, otherwise attractive acquisition opportunities at valuations that are lower than a certain point that you could if you had never raised that venture capital. So it is a double-edged sword in terms of, yes, it gives you the, the fuel to, to ignite the fire sometimes, but a lot of times you can't pursue liquidity events because investors don't make the multiple that they're looking for, even though uh, you as the founder would, uh, and it does create conflicting interests. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a great point. When you, you, you actually achieve taking on venture capital, all you really did was great. Now you have a job and a new boss. Well, not, not only that, but, but you also have to spend it and you have to spend it quickly because they're not giving you the money to sit in the bank. And a lot of sure. times, Startups don't even know how to spend that money, even though they just spent six to 12 months raising it, saying to those investors, here's how I would spend it. When yep, it hits yep. your bank account, the expectation is you're going to spend it. You know, it, it creates a very interesting evolution. So, well, let, let's jump back. Uh, I loved this, the college story, for at least for me, right? From an outsider's perspective, when I heard what you went through, that kind of shaped uh, your career going forward and, and somewhat the success. Maybe you could kind of step back and then tell, take us into kind of the first venture. Yeah, I mean, I would say um, we were all 18, 20 years old, you know, at one point. 
And some of us were more mature than others at that age. And some of us were less mature than, than others at that age. And I would put myself in the less mature category. And, you know, even though I went to a really good academic school and decent grades, you know, I played baseball in college at the division one yeah. level. And, you know, I prioritized other things over that commitment and uh, yeah. eventually led me to leaving the team after two years. Uh, and not fulfilling my obligations and not following through on my commitment. And in the in the moment, it felt like the right decision because I was prioritizing us on other things that 18 to 20 year olds could prioritize. But as I, you know, matured and and as I started to uh start and evolve my career, I looked back on that and said, you know what? I have a regret. I quit prematurely. I didn't I, I let down my teammates, I let down myself. I didn't fulfill my obligations. I didn't take things through the finish line. And uh, in some ways, I kind of took the easy way out. And that shaped me you know, forever in terms of there are so many points in a, in a startup's evolution, especially if you're the founder, co-founder, where it's easy to quit. It's easy to give up. It's easy to, you know, because it's just far harder to sludge through the mud that you need to sludge through to get to the other end. And I think, you know, I look back on what has what has made me who I am and what has led to the perseverance and persistence and grit that I have. It's I look back on that experience and said, I'm never gonna quit again. Never gonna persevere and persist and and figure out how to overcome adversity adversity and challenges. And I think a lot of it is impacted by that that experience of, you know, stopping playing baseball in college prematurely and, and having regrets about it and not wanting to led my life such regrets moving forward. Joe, thanks for sharing that. I think a lot of people that'll absolutely resonate, right? Particularly as as athletes, um, there's a moment in time where you're you're hanging up the cleats. And um, a lot of our identity is tied into that. Mm -hmm. um, and we all kind of think back, what if, right? So those are hard moments. It sounds like you took some amazing lessons uh, from that. And, you know, I, I, after talking to you the first time I could tell like perseverance, that's, that's your superpower. And we've all been there having started companies and not being able to make payroll, being on the edge of bankruptcy. And there's something in certain people that will say irrationally, I'm not letting this go. And, and I have actually a really hard time recommending that to people, right? Because we take, it takes a real like emotional toll to go through that over and over, but you came out on the other side, right? Where a lot of people would have given up in, in many situations. Can you talk to me about kind of that, that first one where it's like, you know, you're up against the wall? Yeah. I mean, it's really been my last two startups, this one, exact thread, my last one, Hopstop, where both companies had multiple near-death experiences, uh, running out mm -hmm. of money, if not having the monetization model or the revenue model figured out, not being profitable, operating in the red every month, seeing dwindling cash in the bay, not knowing if you're going to make a roll next month or next week. And I would say that, you know, yes, 9.9 .9 out of 10 people would, I would frighten the heck out of them and, yeah. you know, they would, they would uh, run in the opposite direction as quickly as possible. You know, and there's people that run towards the fire and the people that run away from the fire. But, you know, you don't do it irrationally. I'm not letting emotions or irrationality get in the way. When I determine that it's worth being steadfast and, and pursuing something in spite of 
immense obstacles and the unlikelihood of success, there is something there that is telling me that it's still worth pursuing. And it's not mm-hmm. illogical or irrational. It could be you know, a lot of positive user feedback. It could be looking at engagement data that doesn't necessarily make the cash register ring, but gives you reason to be optimistic about uh, the future. Uh, it gives you reason to keep sticking with it. My latest venture, ExecThread, my original VCs have largely given up on this. You know, they, they walked away, stepped off the board. We didn't go to, you know, zero to a hundred in five years or less. And, yeah. you know, they even said to me, Joe, you know, opportunity costs would be better for you to find your next new startup or, or another opportunity. And I said, you know what? There's something here. There's something here worth sticking for. And same thing with my last startup, OpStop. And the last one wound up being a very successful outcome in spite of the yep. challenges along the way, having sold to Apple. And ExecFred is now hitting its stride, greatly accelerating and, you know, getting increasingly profitable and revenue getting increasingly interesting month after month and member yeah. growth being scaling. But it, but it came after some near-death experiences and it does take a different sort of mindset to to work through those challenges and to uh, and to not have it adversely impact uh, you know the other parts of your life. So what I'm I'd love to talk about is Hopstop, right? That is uh, it's it's a fantastic story, right? And you go to sell the company to Apple. Can you take me through up to the moment where you were being kind of tapped for acquisition or you made the decision to sell the company. What did you build to that point? Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so Hopstop was a uh, multimodal pedestrian navigation platform that started out as web-only, pre-mobile, believe it or not. And then once I- iPhone was introduced, the one, you know, we morphed much more into a mobile app experience. But we, being Hopstop, invented the whole uh, multimodal pedestrian navigation category, which is just a fancy way of saying the combination of public transit plus walking directions to get from door to door, point A to point B uh, to yep. point C, which is yep. now pervasively distributed in Google Maps and Apple Maps as mm-hmm. a, as another kind of way to, to get from point A to point B besides driving directions. But that whole use case, exact thread was the first mover in that category. Hop stop. Hop stop, right. yeah. And, and not, yep. not necessarily always the best thing to be a first mover. In this case, mm-hmm. it worked to our benefit, mainly because it enabled us to establish a brand and, and a, if we were known for that use case. But Google came into the space two or three years after we, came, you know, after we invented the space, which was awfully validating, but awfully intimidating as well, because mm-hmm. Google gives away Google Maps for free. So how do you compete with free? <laughs> But it also enabled us to scale as well because Google created some standards in the industry that enabled us to to piggyback off of that. But in any event, so uh, Apple, uh, as we all know, introduced Apple Maps a few years ago. And when they introduced it, it was not a successful introduction. And they didn't have pedestrian navigation in it. And mm-hmm. one of the biggest mm-hmm. complaints that you know people had about Apple Maps early on was the fact that it didn't have you know walking in transit directions. So, but, but, but Apple Maps had much bigger fish to fry in that first year or two post launch, but they did reach out to us before, as well as shortly after the introduction of Apple Maps. And we had some good conversations and they were very, very interested, but 
they went radio silent on us. They, they mm-hmm. completely went in the dark. They went from leaning heavily forward one day to not hearing them from them for, you know, two years thereafter, they radio silence. And then I just got a phone call from the head of engineering from Apple Maps one day, two years after not hearing from them at all, saying, you know, be great to get an update. And it seems like you guys are doing some interesting things. And after I gave him the update, he said, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we're interested in acquiring. And I said, well, you know, that's good to hear, but you told me the same thing two years ago. So what makes yeah. me what makes me think you're serious this time? He said, within five minutes, you'll know that I'm serious. And five minutes, the head of corporate development for Apple was calling me and sending me emails. And that's when I knew there was, you know, this was a little different. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for taking me through that. So I got, a, I got a lot of questions, but I think, you know, one of the learnings here is when, you know, somebody in product that is in charge of, of delivering that product for a company gets enamored with a solution and finds like, Hey, this is, I can either build this or we can go out and buy it. And they bring corporate development into that yeah. conversation. You know, yeah. that conversation is, is now serious. Yep, uh, definitely. But, but stepping back, do you think that originally when they were reaching out, it was prior to launch, you said, they probably anticipated, okay, we've got a gap in this product and we got to just kind of explore what what's out there today. Were they fishing for, hey, maybe we can learn something and build it ourselves? You think that's what the, that two years was about and realizing this is a bigger lift than you know we're willing to take? I definitely think it was more of the latter, which is this is a bigger yeah. lift than we're willing to take and we're going to need to bring in some expertise to help us do it and Perfect. You know, integrate. I also think they misunderestimated how important of a use case that was to the navigational experience, blocking in transit yep. directions, especially in big cities like New York and other metropolitan areas. I don't think they were ever, you know, maybe I'm naive, I don't think they were ever to acquire knowledge from us earlier on in the process so they could build it themselves. I think they were trying mm-hmm. to get smarter and figure out, you know, ask and, and answer some key questions for themselves. But I remember yep. after one of those early meetings, you know, two years before we were acquired, the head of engineering for Apple Maps sat silent in an hour-long meeting with us and the head of product was asking all the questions. And at the very end of that meeting, the head of engineering, we didn't say a word in the first hour, towards in the last five minutes of the meeting, said one thing, said, uh, thanks for presenting. That was very, very impressive. And what you guys do is really hard. And that was all we need. Now it's all we needed to hear because, like, yeah, when the head of engineering for a big business unit within (laughs) Apple says what you do is really hard, I don't think he's saying that lightly. But we knew, we knew if we just kept doing what we were doing, that hopefully, no, it would it would come around, which they did. That's great. It brings me <laughs> to, I think, back of a couple of stories where I've been in those rooms talking acquisition with different stakeholders from a potential buyer. And I remember we were we had a product and it was Nike and Nike was testing that product and they were out using the product out around the campus while we were having this meeting. And the product tester was brand new to Nike, had just gotten there that week, a professional skater. And he walks into the room and he's holding, you know, our product, our skates in his hand. He's like, this is the greatest thing I've ever been on. And they grab him and just pull him out into the room. Yeah. So out of the room. Um, 
but but that's great to have that kind of validation to saying you are solving a very difficult needed problem. So you got product, you got engineering, and now corporate development's got to go kind of do their job. Can you talk to me? At that point, had you hired an investment banker, right? At some point, you know this is serious. Mm-hmm. So how are you how are you thinking about representation and taking this from you know serious conversation to an actual transaction? Yeah, you know, um, we didn't go with a banker. We went with uh, uh, kind of a triumvirate of you know the, the CEO, which was me, a really good law firm, and our board mm-hmm. uh, to kind of mm-hmm. handle the process. You know, Apple's also an interesting acquirer in the sense of, you know, they they do wield a lot of power. You know, in retrospect, would I have done things differently? Maybe one or two things, but we didn't really have a lot of time to create a bake-off process. And sure, it was very directly stated to us that if we did try to do that, that that, that could risk things. So we had to sure, kind of sure. uh, weigh the odds of how serious they are when they're saying that versus mm. how quickly can we drum up other interest. And we just decided to stay focused on Apple. And from the point that that head of engineering said, I'll have my head of corporate dev call you in five minutes to the point that the deal was actually done. I mean, the, the due diligence process was like no due diligence process you have ever seen in your life or will ever see in your career, nothing against you, Todd. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. To put it in perspective, when we went out to Cupertino and presented to them, it was five or six of us, you know, head of data, my head of engineering, two or three engineers, head of data, and my COO. And uh, we walked into a conference room and there were a hundred people in that conference room, all with laptops out, all typing away, taking notes, during and then they drilled us for four straight hours you know and, and that was just the start of it it lasted for months and they as they had a corp dev said to me at the process he said he said you know just expect this to be really painful it's analogous to a proctology exam and just tell them you know don't let that get you down and it yeah. was it was it was by no means a slam dunk it we good thing we had our ducks in a row because you know Apple doesn't do things uh, half-ass or uh, or half-hearted. So yeah, let me jump in on that. So you know we we have kind of developed a bit of a specialty in that inbound interest um, segment, as opposed to the retirees or or saying, hey, I want to go to market for you know seven to nine months and maximize my outcome with multiple you know buyers at the table and and what we have found is by bringing in a very industry specific investment banker who has already sold businesses to Apple has a personal relationship across the table it's not necessarily sending the signal that hey we're going to shop this what it's sending a signal is we're on our side going to behave very professionally we're going to be have all our ducks in a row for you Apple but by the way because I'm on this team with three phone calls, I could introduce competition. So it's this little bit of a, a threat. What we also really encourage is that that timeline becomes a little bit more manageable when your investment banker is helping establish what is going to get accomplished at periods of time and holding the other side accountable, right? So time isn't just sitting on their side the whole time. Now, I can't 
fault you, right? You have this amazing outcome. You sold to Apple and you're excited afterwards. So that is a win upon win. And, and, you know, many of these things just fall apart anywhere within the process. So, you know, kudos to you for getting that done. Um, we've just found enormous success when you get that phone call, we can essentially surround you very quickly to kind of reduce the risk have the implicit threat of introducing competition at any moment and then controlling timeline. And it's not necessarily about maximizing value. We think it reduces risk and we seem to, we have zero failures doing that. So we would encourage founders to look for, for help in that and situation. That, and what I would say is that opportunity were to have quickly, easily have presented itself at that point in time, I probably yeah. would have given it serious thought. And in retrospect, it probably would have only helped and not hurt. So I, I hear what you're saying and I agree with you, but sometimes you don't have the luxury of no. slowing down the process to uh, have it play out exactly how you would perfectly want. I agree. I mean, we, that's one of the reasons, you know, we started is that it is really challenging to find who is the right person really quickly mm -hmm. to put on this team, right? It's just, it's a black box. Sure. Um, I think kind of legacy almost in that, you know, you got this amazing product, you know, why do you, you don't want it handed to somebody that is not going to kind of take care of it. And I'm sure part of that due diligence process was kind of that integration planning. How do we ensure that we get the value out of this set series of assets, right. That, that we're paying for. And then for you, right. To be able to see it live and thrive in the Apple ecosystem, I mean, that's fantastic. You can point to that for the rest of your life. So, totally. And, and what I would say is like, once I knew my job was largely over, yeah, there were mm -hmm. more things I could have done. But once once that integration was largely achieved, you know, my interest in staying greatly minimized, mainly because you started experiencing what it would be like to work for that big company as just a as a small little tiny microscopic hog in a very large wheel and mm -hmm. it just became less interesting that's when i knew it was time to leave joe can i ask did you have an earnout? was there more than just integration were there really like milestones yeah, to hit yeah that yeah there, 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 there was an earnout and uh, more tenure based than performance based okay, sure. but 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 you know apple doesn't you're not performing you know like yeah. Um, you know, they didn't need to be performance. Great. Okay. So um, I'd love to jump in and kind of ask some overtime questions uh -huh. before we uh, jump back to exec threads. Yeah. So when you, when you sold the business, when you inked the deal and you knew it was done, who was your first call? There wasn't a first call to be quite honest. Um, I, there, there was eventually a conversation or a call, but I used to ride my bike to and from work from the suburbs of New York City to New York City where Microsoft's office was, which was a good 25 mile ride uh, through some uh. treacherous terrain, to be quite honest. Um, but I uh, I biked to work that day and I was intending to bike home. And once the deal was all done, biked home and it was the most liberating, enjoyable bike ride. You know, I just felt weight of the world was off my shoulders and I kind of did like one of those rocky moments where I put my, my hands yes. in the air uh, while I was on the bike and it was just so fulfilling. Like I, I didn't want to talk to anyone for the first two to three to four hours afterwards. I just wanted to ride my bike and 
just feel free. Um, you know, and then I got out. But um, but yeah, it, there wasn't an, a sense of urgency to call anyone and yeah and share the news. It was just I want to go ride. Joe, I I just love that answer because so much is on your shoulders building this company, right? All the employees, all the investors, so much of your time is in this. And now you're going through a monumental transaction where you're trying to run and grow a business while you've got a second job of trying to sell it. And when you achieve all of that, um, traverse that that peak, you know, I can I can envision you on your bike, right? Just throwing the arms up and feeling that kind of you can breathe. Totally, I didn't throw I didn't throw my arms up when I was still in inner city <laughs> urban areas, but once I got out to like open road, uh, that's what. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, did you reward yourself with anything? Any big purchase? House, car, vacation? Yeah, so uh, I mean, I took my family uh, on like a nice two to three vacation, uh, which was very enjoyable. But the bigger uh, thing was early, you know, in year one or two of Hopstop, I uh, bought a a two hundred year old house, uh, forty five minutes outside of New York City in Westchester County, on a one acre of land, which is quite a big piece of land for being so close to the city. Um, sure, and it was like, you know. It hadn't been touched in 200 years, if you know what I mean, or yeah. five years. And it was one of those things like my wife and I bought it and said, you know what, if one day maybe we'll get resources to to, to, to redo this thing. Um, so we did a two-year, two-and-a-half-year historical remodel in the house. And not only the house, but the property and uh, where we live now, if you know what I mean. And yeah, restored this house back to its original you know, work with all the modern amenities and, you know, built a, a home uh, for ourselves that we truly enjoy spending time in and year round um, yeah. and that we love and that we, we come in every day and that we're proud of. Not, not to be boastful or obnoxious or to brag or to show off, but just from a everyday fulfillment perspective for ourselves. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, yes, I do. I yeah. Do. And you know, what I would also say is, you know, th there were a lot of lead years there. Um, you know, there were two failures uh, from a startup perspective and a founding uh, founder perspective before this, you know, years of not paying myself or I was paying myself, paying myself woefully under market and, you know, being debt and all that. So th there was some hills to climb that. I mean, I had to climb out of some things too from that yeah, acquisition. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, besides, you know, doing the big historical remodel of our house and and vacation right after the acquisition, paying off all my debts and all that, I didn't go buy boy toys or do any like I didn't go buy fancy cars or anything like that. I just, you know, I went right back to work. Good for you. All right. So what I guess what I'd love to dive into is uh, exec threads, right? So it, you, new company, new industry, right? Kind of reinventing yep. yourself, but founding again, raise some capital. Can you t talk to me a little bit about really where you are today? Because this isn't so much about building companies. It's more about exiting, but I want to really promote what you've got because it sounds like a very, very valuable service to a lot of people. Yep. And uh, I want people to know about it. Yeah, I guess a couple of things. First off, the easier decision would have been to stay at Apple. 
you know, mm-hmm. they were paying me well and I wasn't working nearly as hard as I was as a founder or as a CEO, if you know what I mean. And from a risk management and mitigation perspective, easier thing would have been to just stay at Apple or to parlay my entrepreneurial success into becoming a venture capitalist or something like that. Founders sure. do. I I still had the itch in me to, to go do something, you know, entrepreneurial again and, and start another company. I just didn't know what it was. Part of the reason I stayed at Apple for two, two and a half years was I needed to some time to kind of decompress. Then I needed some time to start ideating again. And then I needed some time to take one or two of those ideas and, and put meat on the bone and get to, you know, some sort of validation. You know, that whole process took a good 18 to 24 months. But I soft launched and incubated a new idea while I was at Apple. You know, you ran it as a nonprofit while I was at Apple. So there was no conflict. Um, but I had enough traction against it where once I decided to leave Apple, I said, you know what? Raise money and jump off the lip again. But the, the the original premise is still kind of the value prop today, which is as an executive, you know, VP and above, your access to career advancing job opportunities actually dwindles because the vast majority of the job openings uh, at that senior level are not publicly posted. They're not on, you know, Indeed or ZipRecruiter or Monster or Career Builder or anything like that. They're being worked on by retained executive search firms and we all treat those searches as confidential. So the only way you could find out about them is if you're one of the very few people chosen that they reach out to you about the opportunity uh, as a candidate or if someone in your network lets you know about it. And I was getting approached more and more. I was at Apple post-acquisition Probably not surprisingly, but I wasn't interested in the opportunities that I was being approached for by recruiters. I was interested in the opportunities that were working on that they weren't and how to get access to them. And I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? I'm qualified for far more opportunities that I'm getting approached for. And why can't okay. why can't I get access to them? It's it seemed ridiculous to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. and I was like, I bet if if I'm experiencing that problem and I don't even need a job, you know what I mean? What about people that really kind of, you know, really need a job that 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 need more access? They must be feeling this pain point far more than I am. Sure. So that's what I set out to solve. I said, you know what? I'm going to solve that problem. I'm going to bring transparency to this hidden job market, which is simply defined as all the open recs out there at sec level that are publicly posted. I'm going to create a platform that creates transparency into that hidden job market. The question was how? And I said, you know what? Everyone who's being approached by every one of these executive recruiters, confidence, knows about every single job opportunity out there that's confidential. If I can create a network, a trusted network, where we all share that information with each other, and the reason we would share it with each other is so that if we share it with each other, then, you know, with what with the platform, and then the platform shares that information more broadly to Member that platform. The motivation for me to share the job I'm aware of is if I share that job, I get access to all the other jobs that every other member of the network is sharing. It's great. Um, yeah. So I created a crowdsourced model to do that um, all organically, all from scratch. And uh, we're a network from a few dozen executives agreeing to do this to then a few hundred to then a few thousand to then tens of thousands, so on. And the, and the thing that kind of struck me early on was. Those first few dozen or several dozen people in the network were all people I knew. So they were sharing with me because they knew me. 
right? And I was sharing mm-hmm. with them. But then they started inviting other people into the network that didn't know me or other people in the network and, and the sharing continued. Uh, and then early on, early adopters started to get interviews for these jobs, started to get some of these jobs. And that's when I knew there was something here. And that's when I left Apple. Fast forward six or seven years later, we're approaching a million registered members. And, uh, you know, the first few years was all organic and product, but uh, it's really accelerated. We're now onboarding uh, close to 3,000 new registered members a day. This one hour call, I'm sure several hundred people have joined the network just in this one hour call, if not more. And it's a value prop that I think is clearly resonating, especially in this economy where so many companies are downsizing. Here's a job platform where the primary value proposition is, hey, jobs that you find on this platform are not only the best jobs in the world, senior jobs, but you're not going to find them on the other job boards. You're only going to find them here. That's a pretty compelling value prop, and it really resonates with underrepresented professionals, color, women, or any other constituency that feels marginalized, um, mm-hmm. you know, where, where they get the least amount of access. Here, you know, we don't, we don't discriminate by color or, you know, or by gender or anything like that. Every executive member has a... I love it. I love it. And, and hearing about the, you know, the growth is incredible, right? You got that kind of network effect spinning. And I think you had said to me once, right, that the, it's, it's growing while you're sleeping, right? Those are, that's a fantastic businesses to well, have. It's not only growing. And, and I learned this from my early days at eBay. I was an early employee at eBay. I learned it from my days at Quigo, which is a network. I love businesses where cash register rings while you're sleeping, yeah. where you yeah. don't need somebody selling in a, in, a, in a meeting room or a conference room, you know, trying to convince other human beings to buy it. You know, this is all self-serve. It's all productized, all ingrained in the user experience. It's, you know, it's very much an e-commerce-like business, only it's uh, subscription-based. That's great. So yeah, people should check out exec threads for sure. Um, you know, if they're in that position, right? A VP and above, as you said. Yeah. Let me ask, uh, I got I got two final questions for you. So going through the M&A processes that you have is, uh, that you've done, w- what's the best advice that you can give to our fellow founders about M&A in general? I'd say don't think about M&A. Don't worry about M&A. Don't preoccupy your mind with M&A until the opportunity presents itself. Meaning just stay focused on building a good business and the best businesses are the ones you don't ever want to sell. And I think ExecThread kind of is starting to meet that criteria for me where I'm like, why would I ever want to sell this? This is a great business, yeah. right? Yeah. This is the type of business that I would try to start if this company were ever sold and I would want to try to start a company that would have these sorts of criteria. So, you know, and if you have a business that you never want to sell and it's a great business, then guess what? You're going to want to buy that business. But stay focused on building the business and turning it into a great, if not a great business. And one that you enjoy, you know, growing and working on and don't get preoccupied with things. I love it. Um, all right. Last question. So is there any person in your life that you'd like to thank who contributed to your personal and professional success? I mean, these are, this is going to be an answer that probably most people you've interviewed have given. So I'd say it's really twofold. One is my wife who has been with me every step of the way. Um, yeah. We've got some through some lean years and some tough times, and a lot of it's from career choices I've made not to, you know, to take the path less traveled. And so it's not always a financially fulfilling path, and it's led to a lot of financially challenging times. 
along the way. Uh, and she's, you know, she's let me, you know, pursue my dream and I'll be, be forever grateful to her for that. Um, and then two is, and then my dad, who, you know, as I said, he, he was re-engineered out of the job twice in his career. And I would say if that didn't happen to him, if I didn't see that happening to him and adverse impact it had on him and on my family, for me to then make a decision at a very young age, I'm not going to go do the traditional career path. You know, at the age of nine, I probably made that decision or 10. <laughs> um, if that didn't happen, I probably be speaking to Joe, thank you. This has been really uh, inspirational and educational. I know for a lot of people, they're going to really enjoy this. So thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me and I've enjoyed the conversation. Talk. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.